0: Welcome to Happy Trails, the podcast for trail riders. This is Episode 5, Stewardship and Preservation. Hi, I'm your host, Jess. Thanks for joining me. On today's episode, I'll be discussing trail access, stewardship, and preservation with Holly Groshek, Executive Director of Equine Land Conservation Resource, a nonprofit that assists in the preservation of public and private lands for equestrian use. But before we dive into that, I want to give you a training update. Last month's episode, 10 Essential Skills All Trail Horses Should Know, was a lot of fun. I got some great feedback from listeners who were inspired to get out and work on these skills. It even inspired my friend Gail, an endurance rider, to start an at-home training group. Each week, she posts a list of maneuvers or obstacles, and then members spend the week working with their horses. At the end of the week, we post video clips of our best performance of each skill to the group's Facebook page. It started as an idea for a virtual horse show, but the members quickly decided that observing and learning from each other was much more beneficial. Having weekly goals and a group to be accountable to is also great motivation. There are horses of all ages, breeds, and levels of training in the group, so we started with basic groundwork exercises that everybody can do and progress in difficulty. Over the last six weeks, we've done exercises like walk on a loose lead and stop when I stop, which was one of the exercises from last month's episode, move hips over, side pass along a fence, then eventually side pass over a ground rail, walk over ground poles, walk over raised poles, send or lead over a tarp walk and stop while straddling a pole on the ground, stop and back up, back through an L of poles, back through a serpentine of cones, walk through a narrow gate with a step over, pivot in a square made out of ground poles, trot in hand, both straight and on a circle. The consensus has been that although basic, these exercises have been extremely useful for brushing up on ground manners and refining sensitivity to cues. Groundwork is so often overlooked or brushed aside once a horse's basic education is complete. This is understandable, of course, because riding is much more exciting. But reinforcing these basics periodically is really important for keeping your horse finely tuned. My horses, River and Mackenzie, have certainly benefited. I hadn't even realized how long it had been since I'd done any focused training with them until I got involved in this challenge. It turns out I'd been totally distracted by traveling and exploring new trails, so I let a lot of things fall to the wayside. Now that I'm committed to practicing training exercises on the regular, I'm seeing improvements in attitude, obedience, physical performance, and our horse-human bond. You might recall from the last episode that I mentioned I wanted to spend our time in lockdown working to improve river skating. She's a Tennessee walking horse who has been pacing under saddle since we got her over a year ago. The pace is a very undesirable gait where the front and back legs on each side swing together. If you've never seen it, imagine walking behind a friend with your hands on their shoulders. You'd both be stepping forward at the same time with your left and then your right legs in sync so that you aren't stumbling over each other or stepping on heels. When a horse moves their body this way, it creates a side-to-side swinging motion for the rider. River's pacing has actually made me seasick after 50 miles of an endurance ride. Pacing can also be detrimental to the horse's well-being if allowed to occur long-term. It doesn't promote balanced muscle development through the back like a trot or other 4-beat gait does. I, of course, want River to have a long and healthy life, so I know that I need to get her out of the habit of pacing. I tried early on to correct it but found it very difficult and frustrating, so I put it on the back burner for a while. I consulted some gated horse trainers and riders for advice and eventually began working on things like leg yielding. And giving to bit pressure to build up to a more balanced way of moving. The real breakthrough happened when we were quarantined at Thousand Trails Ranch in Las Vegas. I had two full months to use a facility with an arena and round pen. I started out by free lunging river over Cavaletti in the round pen. I started with just a few poles on the ground which she would trot over, but then immediately fall back into pacing. I kept our sessions short, 10 to 20 minutes at a time, and after a few sessions, I began adding more poles until eventually they covered three quarters of the round pen. This encouraged her to maintain the trot for longer periods. Over a few weeks of doing these workouts and praising her efforts to trot, I was able to remove the poles and have her trot beautifully on cue. I then moved to lunging in the large arena at a trot and incorporating Cavaletti on a straight line. Once she had that down, I moved to riding work. Under saddle, she couldn't maintain the trot very long in the beginning, As she was learning to balance under my weight. I made sure to stop and praise every little effort even if it was just two strides of trot. Another two weeks passed and she was consistently trotting under saddle instead of pacing. At this point the owner of the ranch, who is a gated horse trainer, helped me make that final transition to a running walk by reminding me to keep an upright, balanced position in the saddle, not shift my upper body forward like I'm inclined to do when asking for the trot, squeezing with my calves to encourage more speed, while simultaneously using gentle contact on the reins to support and lift the shoulders, encouraging River to shift her weight to the hind end. Taking the weight off of the forehand and shifting it to the rear generates the pushing power from the hindquarters that creates a smooth four-beat gait. It started out very small with incremental increases in walking speed. Every time she gave me an effort beyond her normal relaxed walk, I rewarded it and gave her a nice long break. The increases in speed took effort and she wasn't crazy about maintaining it very long at first. I understood where she was coming from because squeezing my legs and core muscles was a workout for me too. So our ridden session lengths were usually dictated by how long my physical strength held out. I've continued working on the running walk out on trail. Dirt roads have been great for this. She's maintaining the gait longer and longer each time, only falling into a pace if she gets off balance or is pushed to go too fast. Just yesterday, she threw in some really amazing bursts of speed without breaking gait, When Mackenzie was about to overtake her on the road. I'm absolutely thrilled with this progress and attribute our success to the basic exercises we worked on for months. I encourage you to go back to basics and do a refresher with your horse especially if you're having any training issues. Perhaps get a group of friends together like our Facebook training group to encourage each other and keep everyone accountable. Getting out and doing some training will also help your horse both physically and mentally if he's been on vacation over the winter and or during quarantine. You want a safe and sane horse when you do finally get to hit the trails again. Shortly after quarantine started in late March, people began flocking to parks and natural spaces for recreation, seemingly in record numbers. What is it about telling people to stay at home that gets them all outside? Unfortunately, this led to a lot of trash being left at the trailheads and on the trails. Some municipalities were forced to close their parks and trail systems in an effort to curb the bad behavior. If areas remained open, they ended up being overcrowded. This led to some negative interactions between horseback riders and other users. I've seen reports of riders encountering hikers, bikers, and ATVers behaving in an unsafe manner around the horses. Whether intentional or unintentional, this leads to conflict and potential for injury. It puts horseback riders at risk of losing access to the trails that we hold dear. I hope that the intensity of the chaos will subside as states begin to reopen, But I also think it's important to be mindful of our presence on the trails and our interactions with other users. In an effort to learn more about how we can preserve access to trails, I spoke with Holly Groshek, Executive Director of Equine Land Conservation Resource. She told me that the U.S. is losing 6,000 acres of open land every day. Large open spaces that support our nation's equestrian heritage and economy are disappearing. The ELCR provides easy access to information, resources, and tools that help horse people across the nation take action. Since 2007, ELCR has assisted in the protection of more than 200,000 acres of land and more than 1,200 miles of trails.
1: ELCR is a 501c nonprofit organization. We are national, and I describe us as primarily an education based organization. So we develop resources for public use in what we call six core conservation issue areas. And those six areas are equine access to public lands, equine access to private lands, conservation tools for horse lands, how horses benefit our communities, planning for horses in your community, and best management practices for horse properties. So all our educational materials, including our webcasts in those six core areas are available free to the public the resources Holly mentioned can be found
0: on their website ELCR.org. The online resource library is jam-packed full of great information.
1: So in addition to providing all these educational resources and materials and programming to the public, we also provide one-on-one technical assistance and counseling to individuals or organizations and communities that are working on local land issues.
0: I asked Holly what the most common type of access issue is.
1: Well. I guess we wanna focus on on trails. So I think access for trails issue could be a, a couple of things. It could be people are trying to gain access to a trail that never had equine access in the past, or they're finding out that they may be losing that access. And most of these issues that I think the equine people are facing when we talk about access to land really stem from development, development pressures in a community. They may not seem like they're linked, but once you kind of look at the situation, you peel back the layers, It's usually involves some impact from development because most of our horse people live in and around urban areas. So with more growth, with more urban sprawl, it's really eating up horse land and access to horse land. And even on public lands, we're finding that people are just competing with other user groups, whether they be hikers or bikers. And those groups are generally more well organized than horse people. I hate to say it, but our our horse communities, our horse people are just not really that well organized. So they're usually at a, a loss when competing for access. And I would say the other impact would be people that rode on private land, whether they're fox hunting or hacking or trail riding across private lands, as development comes, these horse farms are maybe getting sold off or developed or new people come into communities and buy these horse farms and they're not horse people. So they don't understand the equine community and the old practice of keeping their gates open and letting people um, traverse across their property. So that's becoming an issue in a lot of these old equine communities. What can people do
0: when they're faced with adversity like this?
1: I think the first thing they need to do is get organized. One of the problems that we face when people call us a lot of times it's almost too late. Horse people are not proactive. They're being reactive. So by the time these issues really come to the forefront, often it's really too late. So I think one of our, our missions is to educate people and sound the alarm about the loss of access and how this is gonna continue to happen. And as horse people, we have to be more engaged. We have to be looking forward and be proactive and say, what are the threats in our communities? What are the threats access that we currently have? Where are we vulnerable? And how can we work collectively? So that could be organizing a local trail organization or a trail group, or bringing different groups together in your local community to talk about these issues and to start being prepared. So whether you're you're trying to work with um, local horse farm owners in your community and keep them engaged and keep them allowing access to their property, or whether you're working as a local group develop greater relationships with public land managers so that you are advocating for access for horses and you are providing the voice from the equine community with those public land managers. Because oftentimes they don't want to exclude horses, they just have not had the experience with the horse people. There's no dialogue there happening. So that's really important.
0: In my personal experience in the past, I've run across private landowners who, even if they are farmers in an agricultural community... They may know nothing at all about horses, and their perception of the dangers and risks of having horses on their property is so skewed from the actual reality, but they end up extremely fearful because our society is so litigious.
1: I would say that is a very common occurrence, and it's probably the main issue that people often close their gates or don't allow access We see this in communities across the country. Um, We were just in Middleburg, Virginia. We had our annual board meeting there. We did a roundtable discussion with local equine groups and brought people together and just said, let's talk about the threats. What are you seeing happening in this community? And one of the chief threats they saw was new people coming in to the community and buying these horse properties. And they're not horse people. They're not familiar with the culture and the practice. And they're not allowing access anymore to their farmland and one of the chief issues is they're afraid of liability issues. So we actually have a resource that we made several years ago. It's called a liability directory on our website and it goes through every state and it talks about liability statutes in those states. So some of it is just educating these people that there are recreational liability statutes that protect you if you let people ride on your property. But again, a lot of it's education. And then the other aspect is people don't want to lose their privacy. So they feel like their privacy is threatened if they let people come across their land. But a lot of it is really trying to meet those people and the community and make them feel part of the community. You know, getting together with them, taking them out, socializing with them, introducing them to other landowners that do allow riding on their property. And hopefully through education and community support, you can get them to feel more able and willing to open their property. And then we also hear hear from communities like Tryon, North Carolina, they have a, a huge trail system on private land, but they're really cautious about not going out on the trails in rainy weather, for example, right? They don't want to do anything to hurt the property or damage that relationship with the private landowners. So. Yeah, that's really important. Those relationships with the private landowners, I would say, and recognizing that it's a privilege and not a right bestowed upon the riders. One of the things we might want to think about is every time we're on a horse and we're out in public, we're representing the equine community, right? And we can have a good encounter or a bad encounter, and that can reflect on horse people in general. So we're all ambassadors every time we're out riding and. Most of the public enjoy seeing horses out on the trails or outside. They don't have any experience with horses. They'd like to come up and maybe see your horse and pet your horse and talk to you and learn something more about your horse. And every time we can do that and extend a positive image for the Ecline community, I think it's, it's really critical. Personally,
0: I love meeting and interacting with other users on the trails. Most people light up with a smile when they see our horses. I always try to stop and talk with folks and offer for them to pet the horses, especially if there are children. I usually carry some treats in my pocket so that they can feed the horses too. Just a few weeks ago in Utah, we had an interesting encounter with some folks that were out hiking. They had a dog with them that was drinking out of one of those collapsible bowls. They were wrapping up and getting ready to leave just as we were coming upon them. I was only a few seconds late in asking them not to toss the extra water that the dog hadn't drunk. When they realized that the horses might be thirsty, they very generously dug through their car for all of their extra water bottles, filling the collapsible bowl and taking turns holding it up in front of each horse's nose so that they could drink. We answered questions about the horses and where we were from, and everybody in the group got a real kick out of the experience. I like to think that maybe they went home with a new positive outlook and will carry that through in future interactions with horses on the trails. Manure seems to be the biggest complaint that hikers have with horses sharing their trails. So whenever we're in the front country on a very popular trail that's shared by a lot of walkers and hikers, I always dismount and kick the manure off the side of the trail. Last year on the Pacific Crest Trail in California, I stopped to do this on a very narrow section of trail only a couple miles out from a campground and trailhead. Some backpackers came along, saw what I was doing, and thanked me very genuinely for my courtesy. I know it's not feasible to do something like this when you're leading a pack train, but if you're just out on your own horse for a pleasure ride, it can't hurt to hop off every once in a while and kick a few road apples off the trail. That one small act could have a surprising impact. You never know. It's always the one bad apple that turns the whole bunch and ruins it for the rest of us. So if everyone can take tiny steps in order to maintain positive relationships, um, I, I think that'll go a long way.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, and I think if, if everybody on horseback felt that way and, and practiced that, we'd have a lot fewer problems. And we have to realize that we can't just take things for granted and say, this is the way it always is, we're entitled to this access, because that's not the case, and As we see more development, more land pressures, we're going to have a lot more competition, particularly on public land with other user groups. So we're all just going to have to get along. And a lot of times, if we can band those different user groups together, we can get more access or we can get more things done. So there's some good examples of just working together what's really important instead of feeling that, you know, it's just the horse people or, or no one.
0: Do you have any specific case studies that are of particular interest to this issue?
1: Uh, the Walter Moss Foundation has 4,000 acres of natural treasure for equestrians in the Carolina Sandhills. It's in the community of Southern Pines, which a lot of people know as is, is a wonderful equestrian community. But about 15 years ago, some of the board members from the Walter Moss Foundation began to see an alarming trend that was threatening the community's equine culture I think this threat really was denied access and the division of existing farms so there was a loss of ability to cross a neighbor's land and also growing community land prices subdivisions of farms and again new residents which we talked about earlier that were unaware or failed to understand the existing horse culture in the community so what they did about 2007 the board of directors developed a strategic plan to include a campaign to secure perpetual trail easements to access the farmland to the 4000 acres of public land the Walter Mouse Foundation oversees and actually we worked with them and provided a grant that we administered through a program funded by Bayer Corporation. In order to um, secure access to these easements, the foundation began sharing its plan with the community members through small neighborhood cocktail parties and private homes. And once they identified maybe about 10 or so individual landowners that were interested in participating, they were able to get together with them and give them some more um, details on how the access easements and projects would work. And about over two and a half years, they secured 10 miles of easements. They are generally the private farms that were close to or surrounding the 4,000 acres. And the wonderful thing they did to celebrate and recognize these landowners, is they developed these beautiful bronze plaques that you can see along the 10 miles of trails dedicated to each landowner that provided that, that easement. So I think this is a really great example of how you can use the private and public lands together, right? And if you don't have access to some of those private lands, it cuts out your ability to access the public lands. So I just thought I would share that one little um, wonderful example of what a community can do.
0: That really is great. What a win.
1: It is a win. And there's an article on our website. On that and you can see some of the pictures of the plaque so if anybody wants to hear more of the details of that story they can go on to our our website elcr.org thank you any parting words well i just remind people that we're here and if you're having any issues in your community feel free to reach out to us
0: wonderful thank you so much for speaking with me today holly well,
1: it's my pleasure thank you for uh, having us
0: I'm so thankful that there are organizations like ELCR out there advocating for horse trails and horse land. They recently held a webinar in April called Equestrian Trail Design and Best Practices from Backcountry to Urban Edge Settings. The webinar discussed trailhead development, urban to wildland transition design, and equestrian trail features to provide best sustainability and lowest impact. A recording of this webinar is available on the website, along with more webinars on topics like equine trail building and maintenance, advocacy, planning, and dealing with opposition to equestrian trails. Recently, the Bureau of Land Management has proposed a rule to allow motorized bicycles, or e-bikes, on non-motorized trails. This is cause for great concern in the horse community and the Equine Land Conservation Resource is working with the Backcountry Horsemen of America to encourage the equine community to contact the BLM, stating that they do not support allowing e-bikes on backcountry trails. Comments are being taken through June 9, 2020. You can submit your comments online via the federal e-rulemaking portal that can be accessed via the BLM webpage, blm.gov. Having access to trails is a precious privilege for most of us, so we can't take it for granted. We can all do our parts to preserve access to our trails by being courteous users, being respectful of the land, and getting involved in the community to preserve and strengthen the relationships we have with landowners and managers. If you find your equine lands being threatened, please reach out for help as soon as possible. Thanks so much for listening, and until next time, happy trails! The Happy Trails podcast was created and produced by me, Jessica Isbrecht. The show's music was written and performed by Jason Shaw.